This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. A request for key voter information made by the Assembly Committee on Campaigns and Elections has been put on hold by the state's Bipartisan Election Commission until it's clear whether or not the chairperson who made the request will be replaced. The request was filed last June by Republican Representative Janelle Branchen of Menominee Falls, who serves as chairperson of the State Assembly's Elections Committee. The request included statewide lists of voters and contact information. Now, this came after a previous request to obtain personal identifying information on voters over the last 20 years was denied last January. Branchen was was re, was rejected from the state GOP's caucus last month, with party leaders questioning whether she could be trusted. When the legislature reconvenes in January, Branchen is not expected to remain chair of the committee. Officials from the Election Commission told the Associated Press that it could take two weeks to collect the data and it would put a strain on other departments and would increase the possibility of errors in data collection. Commissioners have also voiced concerns over the security of voters' personal information and whether or not they could be used to influence lawmaking decisions or political campaigns. Also coming out of the Associated Press, a group of prosecutors from across the state are asking for the lawsuit challenging Wisconsin's abortion ban to be thrown out. District attorneys from Milwaukee, Sheboygan, and Dane counties filed for the dismissal yesterday afternoon, saying that the lawsuit should be tossed because the state attorney general, Josh Call, would not be personally harmed from the ban, and that Call seeks to improperly restrict prosecution powers from the DAs. They also say that there is no legal precedent to say that the law is invalid just because of its age, a main point in Call's lawsuit. Both Dane County's Ishmael Lozan and Milwaukee County's John Chisholm have stated that they would not enforce the ban, but Sheboygan County DA Joel Ormansky said that he will. The Dane County judge presiding over the case has given both sides until February 6th to file briefs in the case and is expected to eventually make its way to the state Supreme Court. The State Journal reports that SSM Health Group is suing two orthopedic surgeons of the hospital. Dr. Jason Sansone, Dr. Brian Keyes, and nine other orthopedic surgeons plan to leave SSM Health by the end of the year to form a separate health group in Dane County called Orthopedic Physicians of Wisconsin. SSM alleges that Sansone and Keyes broke their employment contract by using SSM's health's property and equipment to, quote, plan a competing business, end quote. Additionally, the lawsuit claims that Sansone is in violation by being a medical executive for this new group within a year of departure of SSM. Orthopedic Physicians of Wisconsin plans to build a hospital by January 2025. Local industry leaders gathered at Madison yesterday to discuss the state of the area's economy, reports the Capital Times. While they acknowledge that interest rates, inflation, and home prices are indeed on the rise, business leaders at the State of the Sectors meeting yesterday said that there is still plenty to be proud of in our local economy. Some pointed to the growth of new startups in the area, while other communities are seeing small ventures dry up. Madison has been filled with success stories, especially in the biotech fields. 
Wisconsin State Retirement System even looks safe, at least for the moment. Head of the state's investment board, Rochelle Claskin, spoke of the $135 billion that the state holds in the retirement fund. Claskin said while other states are struggling to keep their retirement coffers full, Wisconsin's are still fully funded for the long term. The Clean Lakes Alliance has kicked off their annual Mendota Freeze Contest. The rule? Guess the official ice on date for Lake Mendota. Everyone who guesses the correct date will be entered to win a $1,000 gift card to Land's End. The state's Office of Climatology will be making the final ruling on when the lake is iced over. Last year's freeze date was January 7th, but the median freeze date is on December 20th, reports WKOW. You can join the contest yourself on the Clean Lakes Alliance website. The suspected shooter in this week's attack on State Street was recently released from jail after threatening to kill someone who had attacked him, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. The suspect, who is still at large, was arrested earlier this month after telling a police officer he had been punched and threatened to kill his attacker. And the City of Madison residents who have yard waste, recyclables, large appliances, or other items to drop off at the Streets Division will have to hold on to their stuff this weekend. The Streets Division drop-off sites will be closed on Saturday and Sunday for a short winter break. Sites will reopen on Monday, December 5th, and the Olin Avenue drop-off site is also now closed until spring. And now on to today's top stories. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire may be harder to come by this holiday season. As inflation drives food prices up, Many Wisconsinites are finding it harder to pay for groceries in face of a nationwide food shortage. WRT reporter Aaron Ashley is here with tips on how to use your local food pantry for those who need help. As you walk through the checkout line of your local grocery store, you may get an unpleasant surprise when the register brings up your total. A study conducted by the Urban Institute earlier this year found that food insecurity among Americans is at its highest point since the start of the pandemic more than two years ago. But this time, it's inflation, not unemployment, that is the driving force behind the current difficulties in affording food. Earlier this year, the New York Times reported recent figures from the Census Bureau stating that 25 million adults were not getting enough food over a seven-day period. As the holiday season draws closer, some are turning to their local food pantries for help. Anyone can qualify uh, to get assistance at uh, one of one of the um, um, the pantries that that we support. That's Chris Tasler, Director of Marketing and Communications at Second Harvest Food Bank in Madison. I spoke with him this afternoon about details of visiting food banks. He explained what people need to consider when planning a visit. In addition to the food resources that we provide, they also get food resources um, from the government, which is essentially TFAP food, and, uh, and that stands for the Emergency Food Assistance Program. And if they are going to be getting TFAP food, then they, they uh, will likely be asked to provide some um, kind of qualifying information. But uh, if they're getting any food that has been sourced from Second Harvest, we do not require any type of uh, qualifications or any type of proof um, uh, from any folks that are served uh, with any of the food that we provide. One of the ways you can find a local or mobile food pantry is by going to the Second Harvest Food Bank's website. 
When you put in your zip code, you'll be given a list of nearby locations you can go to. You can also call United Way's 211 number to get a list of locations near you. Once at a food bank or food pantry, there are a lot of options available. Oh, honestly, it's a huge variety. Uh, yes, there's certainly lots of shelf-stable food, but there's also lots and lots of fresh produce, and there's, um, there's eggs and meat and milk. Tazar says that if someone is in need, they should look past the stigmas and remember that they are here to help anybody. You know, I think to those folks who, they, you know, the, there's a lot of folks out there who think that others are worse off or, or things like that. And the reality is there are resources out there for anyone who could benefit from, from getting some of those food resources to help them make ends, make ends meet. Those resources are there for anyone who needs help. Food pantries are also feeling the stresses of higher prices and haven't been able to rely as much on donations from grocery stores or restaurants. Chris says that the availability and shortage of certain food items depends on several factors and is highly dependent on the individual food pantry locations across the state. Depends on the last time that particular agency uh, got a shipment from us. It also depends on their facilities. Do they have things that can keep frozen product? Do they have things that can, uh, like, a, like a cooler that can keep fresh produce for, you know, more than just a few hours? Some of the most commonly needed items at food pantries are peanut butter, canned tuna, or chicken, boxed meals, rice, and pasta. Sources of protein which don't need to be refrigerated or frozen are especially helpful because they can easily be stored on the shelf for a longer period of time. If you are unsure what to donate, you can call or email your local food pantry to see what specific goods they are facing shortages of. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Aaron Ashley. As Wisconsinites check up items on their holiday gift-buying lists, they might consider supporting black business owners. Their support network says this year is especially important as minority-owned businesses try to recover from the pandemic. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. The holiday shopping season is here, and people are being reminded about the importance of supporting black-owned businesses in Wisconsin and elsewhere. A recent Global State of Small Business report issued by social media company Meta notes the closure rate for minority-led small firms was seven percentage points higher than other operations, and more than half led by black owners reported lower sales than the previous year. Trinity Rush with the Wisconsin Black Chamber of Commerce says there's still an uneven recovery from the pandemic. She says by helping these businesses, they can have stronger communities and inspire others to follow suit. When you talk to people, you do business with people the same background as you, you have that moment to educate them in the way that can relate, that you can more get in tune with them. Rush has her own business called Trend Center, which sells beanies and hats designed to protect a person's hairstyle. She says her product has cultural significance for the black community, although it's useful for other customers as well. And since the racial reckoning, there are calls for consumers and larger companies to be more inclusive in retail and other forms of business. Rush says stronger support for black-owned businesses, especially those still struggling, coincides with any progress in making their communities more vibrant, such as better access to health coverage. She hopes shoppers keep this in mind when they're planning their purchases. Now will be a time to come back and support them and help them, you know, get back up and running and just, you know, feed their dreams. Just two and a half percent of businesses in the U.S. are black owned, even though nearly 13 percent of the country's population is black. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Last week, calls to Madison Green Cab stopped being answered as the cab company quietly ended all services. The sudden move left people in need of rides in the dark. 
Though they had ended regular cab services early th- earlier this year, they remained an important resource for those in need of non-emergency medical rides. To learn more about why the company closed its doors, WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout spoke with Christine Hamilton, a former employee, to learn more. Madison Green Cab has been the city's hybrid taxi service since 2010, moving to all-electric vehicles around 2019. The company was hailed by state and local officials as a way to reduce carbon emissions, but last week the company quietly called it quits. Joining me now is Christine Hamilton, who formerly worked for Mobile 22, the ride-hailing app counterpart to Green Cab. Uh, Christine, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Absolutely. You're very welcome. So just starting things off here, I gave a little bit of the history of the company here, Christine, but tell me tell me a little bit more about uh, Green Cab and its uh, sort of ride-hailing counterpart, Mobile 22. Uh, tell me about the company and then tell me uh, uh, what you did. Okay. So Mobile 22 was definitely the software that was used by all of our transportation providers that we service. I started off with Van Gogh, which was the non-emergency medical transport portion that does the wheelchair services side of, um, you know, Zoology, Green Cab, and Mobile 22. And then um, once I was integrated, I was also involved with just being a senior logistics coordinator for all the companies. Um, And they were all kind of, you know, under the umbrella of Mobility Transportation, Inc., and, and tell me a little bit about Mobility Transportation, Inc. Who who were they? Well, that's, that's just one of the companies that was involved in kind of this um, amalgamation, I guess you could say, that um, were all owned by Shree. So we were all owned by Shree. He was the owner of all the businesses, and um, we were kind of, Van Gogh was purchased and brought on, um, mobile transportation, mobility transportation Inc. was one of the one of the original brainchilds, as well as was Zerology, but Green Cab, Badger Cab, Van Gogh, Capital Express, and Black River Falls were all their own independent companies who were purchased. So now, as Channel 3000 first reported uh, last week, uh, the company uh, pretty quietly short, sort of uh, shut down last week. So t- tell me a little bit about how, how that happened. I guess this all sort of started back in, in March. Is that correct? Yes. There was an original um, cut of services back in March where Green Cab, which um, eventually we turned to the branding of Zerology a few months ago, um, but I'll stick with Green Cab for the purposes of this interview. Um, they stopped doing 24-7 service. We were no longer considered a taxi company. We let go of our taxi license. We could no longer fare, um, hail fares. We could no longer pick up at the airport. We can only drop off there um, because you have to have a taxi license with the city for these things. And that kind of was a big hit to the city with, already being so few taxi services. And I think that's kind of where the ball started. Everything started snowballing, I guess you could say. And I sort of want to turn to uh, the hit to the city in a a couple moments here, Uh, but just sort of going from there, why why did you let, or why did uh, Green Cab, I should say, let the taxi taxi license expire? Um, From what I can tell, there were just too many problems with keeping things 
staffed properly overnight. There were a lot of management issues that I, you know, I wasn't directly a part of because we were splitting driver team and, and management team and, um, excuse me, um, logistics team where, you know, a driver team does the scheduling for the drivers and et cetera, and the logistics team schedules the rides. And it, it started to become untenable on one side, I guess. And that's why we had to make that decision. I mean, I just, I, it was much like the decision about closing. All of a sudden, one day, my, my next supervisor was telling me, we're not going to be doing 24-7 service anymore, so we need to start telling our clients that. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> I mean, okay. Well, we we can do that, but that seems strange. And these weren't things that were always very well communicated as to the why. So I can only surmise. And and so now you you've sort of been involved with Green Cab for uh, a little while here, and and so looking. Yeah, so looking looking at uh, you know taxi service here in Madison uh, from from sort of your with your experience, I should say, uh, what what do you what does that sort of mean for the uh, taxi landscape here in Madison, uh, especially with companies such as uh, Uber and Lyft uh, sort of coming through? Uh, what 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 does the future sort of look like? It's scary. It's scary for anybody who does not have the resources to be able to go out and pay for an Uber or a Lyft. A lot of the clients that we work with are people who are lower income or they're relying on government funds to get their rides. So this is going to affect everyone because when they can't get rides with a a company like us or, you know, one of our competitors, and they have to go to Uber or Lyft, those, who's going to be subsidizing those rides when they're government-funded? The whole community is. The whole community is going to be subsidizing those rides with their tax funds. And so now, uh, one of the things, once you sort of lost your, your or let the taxi license sort of expire, you sort of moved to uh, non-emergency medical transport. So what, uh, what, what do you think will, what does that sort of look like going forward here? Um, As I have said repeatedly over the last week, I am terrified for people who have to get their wheelchair rides. That is the community that I am most concerned about. Um, These people heavily rely on us to go and help them get out of their homes and get into the vans and go to dialysis or their, their heart appointments or their CAT scans or their lab work to make sure that their medicine is okay and their, you know, body is doing all right. Uh, that is what we do heavily, especially with Van Gogh. Um, you know, that was the focus. And now with vans off the road, especially this week, I've, I'm, you know, heart stricken to think about how these people have tried to go to dialysis the last couple of days. Well, Christine, we're sort of running up against the clock here. Do you have just any, any final thoughts that you'd like to share with me here? Absolutely. I just want to say to all of our amazing employees that stuck with through the end, thank you. And I also want to say to our clients out there, we're thinking about you and we're going to do everything we can to help make sure that you have the resources that you need to continue to get to your appointment. I've been talking with Christine Hamilton, former senior logistics coordinator with Mobile 22, which uh, worked very closely with Madison Green Cab. Uh, Christine, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. 
You're so welcome. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Every other Thursday, we air an excerpt from the Oddity Box podcast, which is focused on supporting current and formerly incarcerated people and their families. This week, host D. Starr sat down with Jerome Dillard, the executive director and founder of Expo. Dillard spoke with Starr about the origins of the organization and how they work to help incarcerated people. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D. Starr, here with Jerome Dillard. How you doing, man? I'm good, brother. How about yourself? I cannot complain. I'm blessed and highly favored. For the people that don't know you, can you give us a little bit of insight about who you are? Before I do anything, I just want to thank you for having me here, man. I am just so ecstatic about spending this time and chopping it up with you tonight. I really appreciate that. I'm Jerome Dillard. I'm from uh, the city of Chicago. I was born and raised on the south side of Chicago. I've been in Madison for about 25 years now. Got out of prison here 25 years ago. I'm just feeling good about life and meeting young people who are uh, who leading the charge and uh, changing a system that uh, just has been so corrupt. And I, I, I'm looking forward to chopping it up with you about that and what I'm seeing around the country. Uh, but so, you know, to start off, I'm, I'm Jerome Dillard. <laughs> <laughs> the man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> so, Jerome, can, uh, let's start off by telling the people, like, what exactly did you go to prison for and how long? My crimes were blue-collar crimes. I, I grew up, I aspired to be a hustler at a very young age. We started getting money at a very young age. I chose a lifestyle of being a hustler. Uh, it led me to prison three times. How long did you go to prison for uh, altogether? 13 years. In those 13 years, I know that it changed you a lot. What was the book that kind of flipped the light? It was the Bible. I was a late bloomer going to prison. I was 28, 29 years old when I first went to prison. It consists of three incarcerations and three different systems, Illinois, the federal system, and here in uh, the state of Wisconsin. Altogether, 13 years of my life. It was a growing experience, but the book that changed my life was uh, I would tap into that that was put into me as a child, and that is the Word of God. I've been blessed all my life. I have to say that. I look back in prison on where I saw God's hand on me. I began to appreciate it more. I hungered for a community that was loving, people who weren't using drugs and chasing women and not having peace because you don't know when it's all going to come to a boil. For a long period, I thought I couldn't have that. I didn't deserve that. And I would see people who were living good lives and, and how they looked and the glow that they had. And it was something that I longed for, but you know, didn't think it was possible for me. For the people that doesn't know about Expo, can you tell us about that? I am the executive director of Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing. 
which is also known as Expo. We're a group of formerly incarcerated people who formed a statewide organization of and by those who are affected by the, the criminal legal system. I've been doing this work for about 20 years now. I started out in 2005. Actually, I was volunteering before then with the organization in Madison called Madison Area Urban Ministry. I was one of the first to be what we call a re-entry specialist. We have many terms and, and different levels of re-entry today, but there was no money being put into this. So this is way before peer support specialists. Oh, way before. But, you know, it was something that we did organically with one another in Voices Beyond Bars, which was formed in 2003. 2005, I started doing the work as uh, the president of Voices Beyond Bars which was around for 11 years, doing re-entry work in the Madison area. In 2014, a group of individuals from Madison and from Milwaukee were seeing each other at events like treatment instead of prison, rallying and coming together with this organization, Wisdom, uh, which is a statewide faith-based organization. When I met them, they had a campaign called Treatment Instead of Prison, which did morph into what we call treatment alternatives and diversions today. That that came out of the Treatment Instead of Prison uh, campaign, which very, very underfunded. It's something that we were able to get done. I think today they put $6 million or something like that into uh, treatment alternatives and diversions. No, $12 million. It got little funding back then. And uh, we were all seeing each other at the Capitol in uh, different rallies. And we, we started talking and said, hey, uh, men and women— uh, begin to talk about what it looked like for us to have a statewide organization of and by formerly incarcerated people. And so in 2014, we formed, we became an org, an affiliate of Wisdom in 2017. And uh, in 2020, Expo became its own 501c3. We're wow. still partners with Wisdom. Of course, we, we work. And for the people that don't know what a 501 C3 is, that's a nonprofit organization. Yes, that's correct. Of and by formerly incarcerated people. We are a organizing advocacy organization. We work on laws. Right now we're working, our campaign is to pass a bill called Unlock the Vote. In this season of getting out the vote to unlock the vote, which ties into our voting rights because we have 45,000 plus in the community who are paying taxes, who are working, but yet and still they cannot vote. They do not have any say in who represents their community, who represents their children's school board, or even who the senator is. I have no say, but we're paying taxes. So we, we're saying taxation without representation from the beginning of the founding of this country was wrong. And it's still wrong today. That's why this country was formed, because they were being taxed and they had no say in how the country was being ran. And that's very important because people think that, okay, I can't vote. And if you're on probation or parole, that is true, but that is not true for everywhere in the country. Some places in the in the country, you get out of prison, you served your time, all of your voting rights and all of your things have been reinstated automatically. But what Expo is trying to do is trying to fight for our rights to come home and be productive 
citizens like everybody else. We're one of the only Midwestern states who still use felony disenfranchisement simply because you're on paper, some form of paper or supervision. You cannot Supervision being probation or parole. Right. But in Michigan, in Illinois, in, in Minnesota, you can vote once you're back into in the community. Soon as you're out, we should not lose our vote, period. But that's uh, another fight that we're we're engaged in. There's a national fight today amongst impacted people, some big businesses who are saying the 13th Amendment should be stricken from the Constitution. That's what binds us into this form of slavery. When you have 2.5 million people who are uh, locked up and many, you know, like myself, I made 11 cents an hour institutionalized. 11 cents an hour. Not being able to vote, an old Jim Crow tactic that they've used for years. But I've seen over the years many states changing some of those laws. You know, that's why I don't use reform because when you reform something, you're tinkering with it. We need a real transformation of our criminal legal system today. That was D-Star, host of the Out of the Box podcast, talking with Jerome Dillard, the co-founder and executive director of Expo. Now, that was just an excerpt of their full conversation, which can be found on the Out of the Box podcast, wherever you subscribe. If you're unfortunate enough to have to step outside either today or yesterday, then you already know. December is here and it's cold. With that cold brings ice to the lakes and ice on the lakes means that ice fishing season is almost here. But before you rush out onto the ice, remember that any ice that's out now is not thick enough and no one wants to fall through into the water. This week on Fishy Business, Nate Wiggy Hout and Pat Hansberg check out some basic do's and don'ts for ice fishing and when we can be sure that the ice is safe. Alrighty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, it's been a couple of weeks, and uh, in that couple of weeks, it's got uh, it's got real cold. So I I, I want to ask, just starting off, are people out there out there fishing right now? Well, yeah, the weather's been a little bit of a roller coaster for us. We had um, you know some cold temps uh, two weeks ago. We had a little bit of ice form on on some of the smaller bodies of water around town, and then it got warm again. Uh, but the fishing around town has been uh, pretty great, whether you've been uh, brave enough to get out on the ice uh, or stupid enough to get out on the ice, uh, depending on how you look at it. Or, uh, But shore anglers are also doing really well. And and before we get into some of the uh, uh, shore angling, I want to talk a little bit because over the weekend, uh, a few people did fall into the ice uh, in the uh, area here. Uh, they were rescued and uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe they were okay, uh, but yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, they did. They did fall through, and you know, with uh, this time of year, especially, you know, it's it's hard to say when the ice is good and when it is it is not good. So I want to talk a little bit about that. When when is it? You know, if we're looking at the ice, when can we when can we get out there? Well, the folks at the DNR will tell you that no ice is ever safe ice, but uh, generally, uh, if you're just on on foot you can get away with three inches can be fine. Um, if you've got an ATV or something you're trying to get out, they say at least six inches for something like that. Uh, you can't drive vehicles on the ice anywhere around here, but on lakes where they drive vehicles on, they say 
ice should be at least a foot thick. Um, right now, we just have, um, you know, the, the last week there was two and a half, three inches up there on, on Cherokee uh, Marsh where those guys went through. Um, and the ice up there was uh, pretty safe. I fished myself a couple days out there, Monday and Tuesday, um, the week before they went through when the ice was fresh and solid. But, um, yeah, it deteriorated pretty quick after we got some warm weather. And then, um, yeah, those guys went through. And then I actually heard somebody was out there just yesterday and went through again. So it's I, I don't really know what possesses people to chase bluegills that much. But, um, it, you know, I, I, don't, I don't recommend going out until there's at least about three inches ice. And so now looking at our, our weather report, uh, right now, you know, we do have some uh, cooler temperatures coming up, but like, I mean, tomorrow we are looking at a high of near 50. Uh, we're mm-hmm. looking at a high in the low 40s uh, early next week there. So, so you know, if if looking at that, you know, cold weather, how, how long do you think uh, we need to have some cold, cooler weather to in order to build that ice? And then, you know, how, how much does like a 50 degree day or something like that sort of throw that off? Well, uh, in my experience, ice forms faster than it melts, depending depending on the conditions, of course. But so, like for instance, we had when that first ice that came onto Cherokee uh, two weeks ago, we had a couple nights where it got down in the teens, in the, in the high teens, and that formed over two, three nights. It formed three inches of ice out there on Cherokee, and then we had basically a week and a half of temps in the. 40s, 50s, and even close to 60 there for a while. So we had, uh, and so that and that ice held up pretty well. Um, now there's things like current that can affect ice, and the, and if rain comes through, that can affect the level of ice. But um, generally, um, you, they they the DNR says that you can get up up to an inch and a, inch of ice per night if it's below zero. So if you're up in the teens, you know, for a couple of nights, you'll get a couple inches of ice out there. And we do have uh, several nights that are coming up that are going to be down into the teens coming up in the next week. So, yeah, maybe keep an eye, but, you know, really check the ice before you really step out there. You know, really, we don't want we don't want anyone falling through the ice. It's, it's, it's a, not a fun thing. Uh, so now moving over a little bit, you know, there is ice starting to form, but that, that there still is open water for shore fishing. So let's uh, talk a little bit about that. Uh, what what have you been hearing there? That's right. Yeah, the shore fishing continues to be pretty great around town. Um, if you if you're willing to brave the temperatures, uh, folks have been getting uh, some good walleye action on Lake Mendota, down along the University shoreline, and over to Tenney Park, um, and also over here to the Warner Breakwall at the Warner Boat Launch. Um, they've also been doing well on Lake Monona, down, mostly down in the south end of the lake, uh, city shoreline, Monona Terrace area, down towards. Olin Park from shore has been good there, but also some panfish coming in at the triangles there um, uh, and, and Monona Bay just near Brittingham Park. So there's still uh, quite a bit of shore um, access for people that are, that are don't, don't want to brave the ice or, or, you know, obviously if there's not ice out there, you can still be catching fish from shore. So. I have to be completely honest with you here, Pat. I uh, come winter, I'll I'll go ice fishing. I will go ahead and do that. But shore fishing is not something I do too much. Hard to tie knots with gloves on, if you if you know what I mean. Well, well, okay. you know, like you said, current does sort of affect how how uh, ice forms, which means that a lot of our rivers in the area they're going to take a bit longer before they freeze over. So what's going on uh, over on let's say uh, the Yahara River? What's happening there? Well, I'll be honest, I haven't heard too much out of the Yarra River. Um, 
I do know that down in uh, on Rock Lake, where the uh, Rock or, or I'm sorry, Lake Koshkanon, where the uh, Rock River dumps in down there, that they've had some ice down there and they've been getting some fish. Uh, but walleye anglers have also been uh, finding some fish down there. Uh, the Wisconsin River up near the Prairie du Sac Dam has been uh, productive for walleyes, and uh, the muskie bite up there continues to be good. And that ice or that water up there remains ice-free at the Prairie du Sac Dam basically all winter. So um, there's some good opportunities there. Other rivers, you know, the tributaries over along Lake Michigan hold uh, brown trout and steelhead, and those those fish hang out up in, in those rivers for most of the winter. So there's uh, the steelhead bite is uh, definitely a thing on the Lake Michigan tributaries. Well, Pat, we are running up against the clock here, so just closing things out here. Any final fishing advice for the people out there? Well, uh, I guess fishing advice for this time of year is just please be safe, and if you're not familiar with ice conditions, you know, check with people that are out there fishing and and try to get an idea of what you're walking into because I hate to see more people falling through the ice. Well, I've been talking with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. If you want to hear a fishing report anytime you want, uh, just call one simple number. That's 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thank you so much for talking to me again this week, and good luck out there. Thanks, Nate. Always a pleasure. Take care. And for those of you who celebrate the season by hanging decorations, you may want to switch it up this year and try something new inspired by something old. Now, during the Victorian era, there's a good chance that the wreath you hung on your door wasn't made of pine boughs or ribbons. It could have been made from hair. (laughs) That's right, hair. In this edition of Radio Chipstone, Terry Boyd, a professor emeritus in design studies at UW-Madison, tells contributor Jennifer Fields that while it may ring of the macabre, hair wreaths were much more than decorative objects. If you sort of think about the idea of a mother who keeps a lock of her child's hair when they're born, that it is part of them, a part of them that she wants to keep as the first, the beginning of life. And that has a a connection, deep connection with her. And it also started in the tradition of like when men went to war and their beloved, their significant person in their life would give a lock of hair to take as a physical presence that would go with this person who was leaving. And that then also led to when a person died, that you kept a piece of hair that, again, was a physical presence that became a part of you. A decorative object that is truly made of bits and pieces of family members. But then industrialization came along and people didn't have skill to make these anymore. So then it became possible to purchase hair that in some cases was already made into these kinds of flowers and leaves. For example, with this wreath where there are very dark colors in the hair, they're very light colors. Some are more yellow, some are more uh, orange. Those 
in a family, you wouldn't see that range of colors. And that's where then they begin to sort of think of this as more an ornamental object than a family memorial or a, a, a piece of the family, essentially. And they are now making a wreath. To me, what's fascinating is the desire to somehow manufacture that memorial piece by buying hair that means nothing to you. Why didn't this just go away when people lost the skill to do it? I think that there was still a desire to memorialize, and this tradition had become associated with memorializing. But if you couldn't do it anymore, you didn't have the time, you didn't have the skill, then you began purchasing it just as, maybe not a direct analogy, but in our funerals, we use flowers. Originally, that was, ideally, they came out of your garden, it was sort of part of you, and what do we do now? We go to a florist, we buy, we have them sent. The, the form is still there, but the direct connection is not. Was this created in a business, like a shop? Like you find a milliner, did you have shops where people made wreaths from hair? These are from the sort of mid to mid 19th century to about the 1870s, 1880s, the height of Victoriana, where having masses of decorative things was extremely part of the culture. And so I would imagine at that point, chances are you could go out and buy a hair wreath. I think it's possible that you could buy, like you could buy petals, and there may, be, may have been some sort of stock flowers that you bought, but even then, each of those flowers, each of those petals, someone had made. And you purchased the finished petal, the finished flower. So then, would this have been one of those occupations that would have particularly been thought of as women's work? I think we think of it as women's work, uh, particularly when it's very personal. There tends to be women who, well, that's that, I need to step back, because very often it was a soldier asking for the, uh, the lock of hair of his wife or his child to take with him. Uh, I would imagine for the most part, this tradition, the, the implementation when it gets to the making of these was a, a woman's uh, a craft. So then would this have been a way for women, maybe a new way for women to enter into the workforce and to make their own money? I think that could very well have happened. Do I know that? No. It's a highly developed skill and some women were better at it than others and you know, it might be if your neighbor needed or wanted a hair wreath and she knew that you were very good at this, might ask for it. And so then it grows, just like quilt making. I gotta tell you though, Terry, as much as these make me uneasy, I am drawn to them. They are just... Well, I think that that was the the reason for them to become so popular and so visible that they they spoke to different parts of one's uh, life 
and an aesthetic side, a personal side, a, a, a technical side. You know, how you, know, you just keep looking at them, the more you look, the more you see in them. So I think that is a, 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 a part of them, that they, they spoke to different parts of the way we, we think about the world. You know, I think we still have a, need, a desire to, to keep a, 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 a physical presence of people in our lives in, in various ways. And doesn't right now result in hair wreaths. But, it, but I, th I think we can maintain that romanticism or that sort of just sense of connection that now the connection is lost here. We don't know the context of this anymore. And it might have been for an individual. You know, it might have been a family that, that ha hired someone to make this for a member of the family because one of them is so elaborate. And, but now the connection is gone, and we see it as just an object. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer was Pete Voller. Welcome to the team, Pete. Your reporter tonight was Aaron Ashley. Special thanks to feature contributors D. Starr, Pat Hansberg, and Jennifer Fields. Dave, Super Dave Lawrence engineered the show. Nate Wiki helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, be one of the cool kids and listen to the local news as a podcast. You'll never miss an episode when you find it wherever you subscribe. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.